Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 584, air date April 21st, 2020. Great. I think we're live. Great. Okay, now I'm going to go live on Instagram. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure, uh, live from uh, Massachusetts. But it's a pleasure to be here. I know when I spoke to Jan, we really wanted to have a conversation and I spoke to her about, um, you, know, you know, I've spoken a lot. And by the way, to everyone listening, I'm having a conversation. How would you characterize the group here? Is it a medical summit? It's essentially a lot of medical doctors here, right? Yes. Yeah. So we have, to everyone just joining us, we have a, a incredible group of medical doctors here who have joined us. And I have them here on the other screen. And we're really going to have a conversation today about um, really what we need to do to build a movement uh, uh, in this country for health freedom and for truth, freedom and health. What's gone on for way too long is that movements have started and they've frankly been uh, derailed because the, the right theoretical framework has not existed. And for me, as people know, there's two things that have been a passion of mine. One has been medicine, you know, studying medicine and science from a, uh, a deep perspective as a scientist and as a system scientist. But equally important for me has been uh, an, a desire to understand um, uh, political movements and how do you actually win. And this may seem like something that normally people like myself should not be studying. You know, scientists should stay in their little cubbyhole, but it's been something that's central to who I am. And um, I think you're cut off there. Could you come to the center of the camera? Because, uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, so, um, so we have a team of doctors here, and one of the things I wanted to talk about historically, medical doctors have been somewhat apolitical, have historically had had golden handcuffs not to participate in movements. And one of the big opportunities that I see taking place with what's happened with COVID is, in some ways, medical doctors hopefully are starting to recognize that they're not any different than the frontline medical workers. The people who run the hospitals are the hospital administrators. In fact, I believe there's 15 to one uh, hospital administrators to med uh, medical doctors. So part of, um, the, the, the percentage, you know, in most big hospitals. Uh, and this is not that different than what's taken place in academia, the level of administrators to actually researchers who are actually doing the work. So part of the broader context is, you know, I've, I've given a, a lot of discussion about COVID and what's going on relative to the, the uh, outdated or un the unfortunate distraction from the real science that it's not the virus or these pathogens the fear-mongering that goes around them as though they are coming and attacking our body, that it is, it is really fu fundamentally a weakened and dysfunctional immune system. So I've, uh, my intention there was to set some real clarity on what is the real problem when you go to the real science. And I think that's been hitting a chord. It's, it's gone viral, it's gone global, because people know something doesn't make sense, particularly people with common sense. The vulnerable educated elites are the ones who don't understand science or they, they get sort of subsumed by this fear mongering. Now, so, so we can have a discussion on the medical side. There's enough videos that I've done to educate people, but I want to really have a discussion equally important on the political side. Um, and several, uh, several, I think a couple of days ago, I did a, a set of, I don't know if you guys saw it, but I did a, uh, I did a whole, um, I did a whole set of slides and education on really what I call about the not so obvious establishment. 
And this may sound like a weird term, but I want to be able to discuss it with everyone. And what do I mean by that? Um, uh, in political movements, political movements, and if we want to take it sort of, if I were to, uh, if we were to sort of take it from a, a, uh, a, a, a a studious standpoint really understanding this, political movements actually have physics. They are a science. No different than if you understood gravity or no uh, way that you understood other aspects in physics and dynamics. Unfortunately, people uh, are not aware of these dynamics, so what ends up happening over centuries or sometimes years or decades is when people start rising up and they start smelling something's wrong, and they want freedom or truth or health, they typically uh, start getting involved in these movements and then eventually there's a distraction that takes place. And that distraction leads to dead-end uh, positions where nothing ever gets resolved. And so I want to talk about that. I call it the not-so-obvious establishment. And there are really two faces of the establishment, meaning those in power. The apparent establishment which you can see face to face in the case that I'm talking about here is I've brought to the forefront uh, the fact that you have a collusion between the front man you call Anthony Fauci. You have then a collusion between the WHO and the CDC and also the Chinese government's involved in this. That's one set. And then separate from that, you have foundations, very large foundations who really are unelected governments right now. Uh, the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative, and then coming up behind them is the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. So what we have is we have a set of people, for example, many of these foundations take billions of dollars, which should have been taxed, and they've cleverly figured out a way to create their own sort of external governments, which they call foundations. And using that enormous amount of money that they get, they believe that they can design public policy. And that's what's fundamentally going on. You have a set, a finite set of people who literally have taken money out of tax dollars, which should go to the public, and they believe they can design public policy. So you have literally a global government going on, led by these foundations. And they may sound good, but that's what they're doing in all material levels. So you have the foundations, you have these WHO, the UN, the CDC, and then, then you have someone like Anthony Fauci. So I, I brought that out as what I call the establishment. And, and hopefully I'll go into it in more detail, that establishment is not involved in any nation anymore. They cross boundaries across nations. Their intentions and their agenda is not to serve even their national interests, but to serve global interests. In fact, to serve the interests of power, profit, and control. Now, that's the obvious establishment. However, whenever the establishment exists, the establishment is very, very, very clever. They have uh, people who analyze political movements like I'm talking to. They have people who go to the John F. Kennedy School of Government. They have people who are in the CIA and, and you know all different organizations who study theory. And theoretically, they say, you know what? The way we really screw people over when they start to rise up is not through the obvious establishment, but through the not-so-obvious establishment. And that not-so-obvious establishment historically is not understood by well-meaning people when movements begin. And in fact, the ignorance of the not-so-obvious establishment always leads to dead end. In fact, leads to greater human suffering. So what I want to talk to you about today is that not-so-obvious establishment. It's easy to identify Big Pharma and Bill Gates as the establishment, okay, which we've been hitting. But the not-so-obvious establishment is people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., okay? 
And I want to talk about him because until people understand that in these movements, people hang out, they hang out for 17 years, they run their little nonprofits, but what they actually do is they do not ever build a bottoms up movement. And I want to talk to you about that. If you look at the history of the world, it is never movements and changes never come top down or from people who seemingly want change who also come from top down. I want to give you some historical examples. Then I'm going to talk about Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton. They are two sides of the same coin. However, it is very in vogue right now after I started the Fire Fauci campaign. You know, it's easy to attack Gates. But equally, if you are not exposing Hillary Clinton, who's part of this, then you're part of the not so obvious establishment. This is not political lines anymore. This is about health. And I, I want to really get this across so people understand this. We will have a revolution overnight and we will have significant change in this world. But if we do not do this, we will go into suffering. Let me give you some historical examples. In the 1900s, there was the Tsar in Russia, obviously an oppressive force. Agreed? Clearly an oppressive force who wanted to subjugate his people. Well, in response to that, um, there was the rising up of massive amounts of people, everyday people, self-organizing systems, not top-down, not someone who said, I'm here to help you, but they came bottoms up. Workers, uh, soldiers, army personnel were rising up to overthrow the Tsar, a revolutionary movement. So what does the Tsar do? What does the Tsar do, the establishment? What do they do? They don't go shoot them right away. They don't go attack them. They said, you know what? Hey, you guys, you don't need to go on the streets. You don't need to go protest. You don't need to build a bottoms up movement. Come over here to our legislature. We're going to build this nice thing called the Duma, D-U-M-A, which meant the legislature. Get off the streets and let's start having conversations about how we can make this better in the legislative environment. Okay? So what that did was it was an attempt to create a safety valve for the movement. It was an attempt to control the movement. Well, in Russia, at least for two years, the working people didn't listen and they had a good revolution until you know they had a failure. But nonetheless, and we can talk about that, it was a victory for a short period of time. Let me give you another example. In India, you know, the British were in India for nearly 300 years, oppressing people, abusing people. And the British did something very interesting. In India, they created another not so obvious establishment group um, of Indian civil servants, their own people who were used to oppress the broad masses of Indians. And by the way, this occurred in Africa, etc. So the establishment of the British Raj did not want to directly oppress the people, so they recruited Indians, gave them nice positions, dressed them up like British, and those people were used to oppress their own people, okay? So around in the 1920s, something interesting occurs in India. Movements of ground force movements, bottoms up, again, not top down, not leaders coming from the top telling people, you know, I care for you, but bottoms up. There were revolutionary movements taking place across India saying, hey, look, America had a good revolution. Don't we as Indians who've been subjugated by British colonial rule deserve a good revolution? And that was burgeoning all over India in the 1920s. Everyday people, workers, nurses, doctors, engineers were striking. So what happens? Well, the British set up the Indian National Congress, very much like the Duma, a safety valve, a legislature. At the same time, a guy called Gandhi comes into the picture. 
Now Gandhi was in South Africa, and in South Africa what he had done was frankly nothing. He was in fact a racist. He subjugated both the poor blacks and the poor Hindus he was, uh, in South Africa. He was trying to help some wealthy Indians, trying to get some trading rights, and you can go study this. And he was a miserable failure. He didn't get that. So when he comes to India, he, he, is, he is embraced by the, the Indians who are the establishment Anglophile pro-British Indians. They give him a nice palace to stay in, they resurrect him, they create a brand. He is going to be the Mahatma, which means a great one. You know, and then you see the whole theatrics. And that theatrics results in the Indian masses thinking he is going to be their savior. And he basically participates in the Indian National Congress and he anoints leaders like Nehru, who are from top down, from the elite families, and they essentially transfer power. They don't have a good revolution in India. They transfer power from the burgeoning working movement, people bottoms up, and they say, no, 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 come to this thing called the legislature, negotiate your way out. And they didn't negotiate, what they ended up getting was a raw deal. They transferred power from the British Raj to the Indian elite. In fact, the document is called the transfer of power. It's nowhere near the Declaration of Independence. So what happens in India? You have 70, 80 years of corruption. The, the, the brown men with white hats who took over were more abusive to the Indian masses than the white men with crowns, okay? That's what happened in India. And Gandhi got presented as this great Mahatma, statues were built, but I'll tell you this, he advanced the caste system in India and nothing fundamentally changed. Modi was the first nationalist India India's had uh, because after Gandhi, Nehru took over, then his daughter, then his daughter's son, and so on. They created a dynasty for 70 years. That's what Gandhi delivered India. Okay? Now, let's, I know this is unfortunate to hear, but this is what happened. Now, let's go to the civil rights movement in this country. You know, in this country, again, there were massive amounts of people, names who we do not know on the ground, wanting to fight for true rights for, uh, you know, everyday black people or minorities. Well, what happened? And this is going to sound, again, uh, counter. That movement, you know, there were people like Malcolm X, bottoms up people. That movement was taken over, if you study carefully, by the Kennedys. They anointed the leaders, Martin Luther King. They created a beautiful, beautiful speech. I have a dream, everything. Well done. You know, hooray. And their resolution of civil rights was don't use certain words and through affirmative action. They never addressed the fundamental issues, which was inner city infrastructure. And the condition of black people today is worse than it was before civil rights. Now I'll give you a successful movement that broke from the not so obvious establishment. That was the anti-war movement. If you study that carefully, again, you had the counterculture people supporting the left wing of the Democratic Party saying, oh, you know, they're anti-war against Goldwater. Well, when they got their heads bashed in by Lyndon B. Johnson's police outside of the uh, you know, the Chicago Convention, and they said, whoa, the Democrats are also anti or pro-war. And that's when the movement broke away in 68, and in two years, the, the war ended. So what I'm trying to tell you is that when bottoms-up movements get taken over by the rhetoric of the not-so-obvious establishment, we prolong suffering. The most recent, ex two recent examples I'd like to give you is Jesse Jackson, in 1984 and Bernie Sanders. In 1984, I was an 18-year-old student at MIT, 
was very, very excited that someone like Jesse Jackson was running, thinking, wow, he's anti-establishment. But what did he do on the floor of the Democratic Convention? He was building a movement. He gives all of his votes. If you remember, if everyone remember this, at the last minute to Walter Mondale speaking the lesser of two evils. Everyone remember this? And so he sold out the whole movement. He didn't build an independent movement. Fast forward to 2016, you had a guy called Bernie Sanders talking about revolution and blah, 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 this. And what did he do at the end? He gives his votes to Hillary Clinton. So they sell out movements. Now, let me bring you up to why this is important. Because as a student of this, I am motivated to create a revolutionary movement, a broad movement, a global movement for truth, freedom, and health, which means freedom at a deep, deep level, which means no censorship, open debate, open discourse, and, and the true practice of the scientific method. And from that, we can get to truth. And truth means real science, not the science of a few academics, a few peer-reviewed journals deciding what truth is. In order to do that, we need to smash the academic establishment. And I have a plan for that called the Citizens' Rights Act, just like I do for digital rights. And then for health, we need to eliminate all the middlemen in the healthcare system. We need to decentralize healthcare to the edges, and that's how we're going to win. GPOs, PBMs, all these, those are just the beginning. Now, the movement that has been spurred on by this coronavirus is really goes down to medical freedom. And when I got involved in this, I've been involved in health movement since I was four years old. I've been working, as many of you know, just a background, if some of you may not know. My name is Dr. Shivaya Dure. I've been uh, a, a student of health uh, since I grew up in India, where my grandmother was a traditional healer at the age of four, and a student of politics since I grew up as an untouchable in an, in an atrocious thing called the Indian caste system. So the fact that my parents made it here was quite extraordinary. I grew up as a working class kid in New Jersey started working as a full-time research fellow in medicine at the age of 14. And in that medical hospital, I created the first email system before I came to MIT. And my journey through MIT was always in medicine, um, in and out, and I'll talk more about it, multiple degrees. My PhD is in a field called biological engineering. I'm considered one of the renowned experts in the field of precision and personalized medicine, and uh, someone uh, quite uh, having a, a deep expertise on the immune system. Uh, I just gave the talk at the National Science Foundation four years ago. So having said that, when I got involved in the, you know, people said, hey, Shiva, you should look at vaccines. About a year ago, I started looking at it and I said, you know what? There's no safety assessment standards. I held the first safe national, uh, international safety assessment conference here. And as I got into this movement, I realized there have been people in this movement for 17 years and their entire model was begging to legislators begging 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 and let me start in 1962 the national vaccine act was created by john kennedy it was created based on a very rudimentary understanding of the immune system a very rudimentary understanding and that understanding was just the innate immune system talking to the adaptive they didn't know about the microbiome they didn't know about the virome they didn't talk about the interferon system they didn't talk about the neural system they didn't talk about the gut brain axis however Based on this very rudimentary understanding, John Kennedy signed into act the National Vaccine Act. That created the CDC, the Center for Communicable Diseases, and the notion that we should create guidelines for vaccines. Well, those guidelines were created. And by the way, the CDC is a revolving door with pharma. They are 
I don't believe they're even a government organization. They're a private organization. So that's what you have. So you have a revolving door with pharma, which created a vaccine schedule, which was not at all in alignment with the modern principles of medicine, which says the right medicine for the right person at the right time, called precision and personalized medicine. So starting in 1962, up until 1986, parents, individuals started experiencing what, the, what you would call vaccine injury. There were nearly a, several thousand lawsuits being filed against the vaccine manufacturers. Now, in response to that, what did the lawmakers do in Washington? What did they do? They didn't repeal that act. They instead created a big band-aid. And that band-aid was called the National Vaccine Injury Program, brought to you, sponsored by another Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, with Orrin Hatch and Waxman. Now, now Reagan was a president, and he did not want to sign this bill. It was shoved under another bill, which he, which was very favorable, which had very good things. So, so Reagan was forced to sign this for political reasons by both houses, which were Democrats. And I don't care about Democrats or Republicans, by the way. But Ted Kennedy was the sponsor of that bill. Well, that bill gets signed. And what it did was it created the vaccine courts. It removed, frankly, in my view, it destroyed a part of the Constitution. Um, and what it did was it took, it took the, 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 the court system, the adjudication from there, and put it under Health and Human Services. And in order for parents to sue, they couldn't go to the courts if their kid got injured, they had to go to, to this thing called the vaccine courts, all right? And the limitation of liability, as I understand, for death was around $250,000. But we created a big Chinese wall for everyday people to sue, okay? That's what happened. And that fundamental uh, uh, Chinese wall served the interests of big pharma and big vaccines. And that is what resulted in the, condition, in the condition we have today. So after that, instead of further removing that act, people realized, well, this is wrong. So they started give, at the state level, exemptions were given. Medical exemptions, religious exemptions, etc. Okay? A Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid. All legislative, legislative, legislative. People like Citizens Defense Fund, uh, you know, other people saying, follow us, do this. We're going to suck up to some legislator. We're going to do backroom deals. And this is what I'm talking about. Legislators. And when I got involved in this movement, these people, these organizations would go around telling activists to shut up what signs you should hold and what you, you should always do backroom deals with legislature. So when I got involved, this being me, being from an activist perspective who understands the history, I said, this is bullshit. Excuse my language. This ain't going to go anywhere. And it hadn't. You have a Kennedy saying, give me money, give me money. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. Big Pharma talking his whatever, the rhetoric. But nothing had been done. In fact, loss after loss after loss. New York loss. California lost all backroom negotiations. Believe the believe backroom negotiations. You are on the enemy's battleground. And this is the not so obvious establishment. So I said, nonsense, we should build a bottoms up movement. People should get militant on the ground. 
And that's what the New Jersey mothers did. That was because of my leadership. And I have to take full credit for that because it's important that people recognize there is differences in leadership. And because of that, what happened in New Jersey? We won. It was bottoms up and the legislators got afraid and people like Dull Bigtree and Bobby Kennedy flew in and they were still telling people to negotiate with the Democrat legislatures. It was that movement which put the fear of God into them. And it is only the movements which will always make change. It is not legislative, you know, underpinnings from day one. So now let us talk about why I believe that the not so obvious establishment in this movement needs to be called out. About four or five weeks ago, as you were saying, um, you know, I when I got in, when I saw the coronavirus thing, I put out a tweet. And if you remember, I think uh, that tweet clear, clearly said, uh, Dr. Carla Dine, right? It said that as a MIT PhD in biological engineering, I, uh, you know, I needed to put my credentials because people listen to them, unfortunately, or fortunately in this world, you know, and as someone who studies the immune system, that I believe that this will go down in history as one of the biggest fear-mongering hoax, hoaxes to destroy the economy, to manipulate, uh, I mean, uh, to, to, uh, to destroy, uh, to, you know, uh, put down dissension and to impose mandated medicine, okay? And then I started the hashtag fire Fauci. No one was willing to attack Fauci at all because no one felt they had the credentials to do that. Well, I did because I've studied the immune system. I've been in academia and I went, I put myself out there and I took him head on. And that took off like wildfire because everyday people, bottoms up people were waiting for that spark. And then you had other people starting to jump in after I attacked Bill Gates, I attacked all of them. Then you have Bobby Kennedy starting to attack Bill Gates, but he does not attack Hillary Clinton. He endorsed her three times, not once, not twice, three times. And I'm not talking about like voting for, I'm talking about taking press releases, taking money from the Clinton Global Initiative. The, the, and I'll share some slides. If you guys, by the way, I'm, t I'm putting this out on YouTube if you want to see it. If you look at the Clinton Global Initiative and the Gates Foundation, they're doppelganger twins. You have Gates on one side and you have Hillary Clinton on the other side. And if you really go look at these two organizations, and I'll, I'll put these up if you guys wanna go to my YouTube, you can look at this as you're watching this, but I'll describe this. You have Bill Gates, as people know, he has started the, uh, and this will make it hopefully absolutely clear why I am so, so disgusted by this. You have Bill Gates who has a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's met with Fauci, Fauci knows them. You have Hillary Clinton, who has a Clinton Global, Clinton Global Foundation, Global Initiative, and she's met with Fauci. Well, if you look carefully, there is something called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. A billion dollars the Gates Foundation put into them. Go look at it, research it. He got McKinsey, one of the most, if, if anyone doesn't know who McKinsey is, McKinsey is the brain trust of the elite. McKinsey, a lot of my friends at MIT go work there. They get paid really good money but they are the evil brain trust. They figure out how to topple governments. They figure out how to you know, save companies who are on the brink of disaster. Well, that was the arm that Gates brought in. So Gavi gave about 100 million to one of the Clinton initiatives. 
And so you have Hillary Clinton over here and you have Bill Gates here. And by the way, the Gates Foundation gave money to the Clinton Global Initiative and so did Monsanto. So let that sink in. There's no difference between Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton. No difference. In fact, as you research it, you find out that Gabby supports supports the Sustainable Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals is about painting a utopia for the world. 17 points, you know, gender equality, you know, no poverty, clean air, sanitation, climate action, etc. You go down the list, it's a utopia. Well, in order to achieve that utopia, you know what the goal is? We must vaccinate everyone. IA 2030, you can look it up. A world where everyone everywhere at every age fully benefits from vaccines to leave no one behind. Okay? That is a Sustainable Development Goals 3, supported by Gavi, brought to you by Bill Gates and his compadre, Hillary Clinton. Is this becoming clear? All right. And if you go look at this, they hold their hero countries are countries like Denmark. Denmark just three weeks ago passed a law, an emergency coronavirus law, which says Denmark's parliament on Thursday night unanimously passed an emergency coronavirus law, which gives health authorities powers to force testing and treatment, vaccination, and quarantine with the backing of the police. Okay? That is brought to you by Gavi, again supported by Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton, who Bobby Kennedy endorsed. So don't tell me that Bobby Kennedy is for medical freedom. And don't tell me that I am splitting the movement. This movement should be split. It should be divided between the stupid people who want to go follow the Kennedys and maybe want to follow Hollywood and are brainwashed because they're so enamored by that and the reality of what's going on. Because I'll tell you right now, we're not going to win freedom by basing it on top down. The Kennedys have become institutionalized, not so obvious establishment in this country. And by the way, this is not because I'm running for U.S. Senate. My potential opponent on the Democratic side, his nephew, Joe Kennedy, is pro-vaccine mandates. And Bobby Kennedy just four weeks ago raised money for him. So I'm here to tell you that if we do not call out, yes, you thought Bobby Kennedy was on your side. And that's the point. The establishment is very, very, very smart. They're not stupid. I went to the uh, Vi event in DC where they called me, you know, begrudgingly to have me speak. I spoke, I got the, I got the best response. And then after that, they had a VIP event, an open bar, people getting sloshed. And then at the end of it, Bobby Kennedy's asking for $25,000. This is how the not so obvious establishment works. It's not a bottoms up movement. They do not know what, what bot, they will use the word boots on the ground. You don't know what boots on the ground are. You've never done it. So I'm here to teach everyone that when you look at what's going on, we have a huge opportunity to win. And it's not gonna come from the establishment and it's not gonna come from people speak both sides of their mouth. No way, it's never gonna come from them. And what's happened is, because I've taken such a principled stand, it has unleashed a movement across this world. I just got a note from one of the big people watch memes. He goes, Shiva, your memes have a, the highest meme velocity since Trump ran. 
And it's because of the truth of what I'm speaking with confidence and with authenticity. And I don't give a damn about splitting, quote unquote, splitting a movement which should be split from, the, from those who want to create a revolutionary movement to win and those people who want to hang on to celebrityhood. We will not win that way. I'll put that to you in writing right now because these people are part of Big Pharma and they do not, whatever the reason is, may be a nice guy, but you cannot win it for 17 years if you keep putting everything into legislative, everything into judicial. We have to build a mass movement to win. And so what I, in closing, what I want to say is I could talk to you about the physics of the immune system and why Fauci is a fake scientist and what he's doing, which everyone's getting, and why he must be fired. That's why we put up this post. You know, nearly 85,000 people have now signed it. By the way, if anyone wants to go to Shiva for Senate, you will see what's going on there. You will see the enormous amount of response. I'll go to it right now. If you go to shivaforsenate.com and you scroll down, you'll see there's a slider there and you'll see it says sign petition to fire Fauci. And if I click on there and you scroll down through it, I think the numbers are close to 81,632. Nearly 3,000 medical doctors have signed this worldwide. That's why we've been able to create with this little camera here, with a little bunch of lights, not you know, running an organization for 15, 17 years, begging money from people to tell them you're gonna fight lawsuits and courts and do stuff with legislators. Anyway, right. there you go. I know this may be hard to hear. It may be a bitter pill, but life is short. We have to win and we're not gonna win the same old way. We're at an inflection point in human history. And that inflection point is we can go to an enormously rich golden age or we can be misled into another dark age. All right. It's really weird how YouTube doesn't let you do that. Okay. All right. All right, Jen, we're back. Do you see it, Jen? All right, everyone, we're back. Sorry about that. Let me just turn this back on. It should be part two. Do you see it, Jen? Is it on YouTube or no? Um, still refreshing that. Okay. If not, we'll just start here. Okay. All right, everyone. Sorry about that. Okay, uh, so let's ask some questions here. Hold on just a second. Yep. Abortion is being live streamed. This is the first we've heard that it was going to be live streamed. Where do you where do you put this out on? Oh, I just put it up on my Twitter and and my Facebook. Okay, because I think that people who are on just kind of wanted to know where this is being sent because I didn't realize it was going to be sent someplace else. Um. Well, I do lives and, you know, I, I have to do my lives on a regular basis. We, we built up an audience, so pe it's, you know, it's a part of being transparent. We, I share what I do with everyone. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Katerina in Texas, you had the first question. Yes. Hi, Dr. Shiva. Um, How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, sir. Good. I'm a, I'm a primary care physician in... Um, Texas, I do direct primary care. I'm independent. Uh, oh, wonderful. Um, and I, 
lots of doctors on this talk with you tonight. Uh, some of our concerns are um, actually, from my standpoint, I grew up in uh, former Yugoslavia, and uh, I know what communism is, and uh, some of the decisions that are happening on uh, different in state levels are starting to resemble some of those things I lived through. And for us physicians right now, the struggle that we're having